Thanks for listening to this Ave Maria radio podcast. Be sure to share it with your friends and family and across social media. Building the church so we can bless the nations. This is Ave Maria radio. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. As important as the workplace is, there's relatively little uh, theological or philosophical reflection on the workplace. Uh, we have, of course, uh, papal encyclicals now and then. John Paul II uh, has an outstanding encyclical on work, uh, distinguishing between the what he calls the objective side of work, uh, meaning basically the tasks that are to be performed, and the subjective side, which has to do with our sense of purpose in uh, carrying out our work. Um, and at the present time, roughly a quarter of uh, workers claim that their job is very fulfilling. I mean, 75%, you know, don't really see their job as very fulfilling. And this takes place against a time where we're seeing a new wave of anxiety about artificial intelligence and robotics and the fear of worker displacement. Well, to talk about uh, all these things it, with me is Dr. Brett Beasley. He's associate director of the Notre Dame Deloitte Center um, for Ethical Leadership and uh, just published an outstanding uh, article that I uh, had the opportunity to read and thought it was something worth talking about. Brett, good to have you here. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Thanks very much for having me. Automation anxiety is not new, right? I mean, this has been with us since uh, we started using machines. Absolutely. You know, I think every single change in what you were describing there that John, John Paul II calls that objective side of work, every change from, you know, whether it's been moving away from tools to more industrial processes, we've always seen that displace workers, um, at least for a period of time, and put people out of, out of work. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been with us for, for hundreds of years now. Uh, I mean, I can remember this being talked about even when I was a, you know, just a teenager and beginning to think about entering the workforce. Uh, my father warning about this kind of thing and saying, you know, eventually robots will take our, all our jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, there's a website now that you refer to called willrobotstakemyjob.com. So now we've got not only machines per se, but we've got uh, artificial intelligence, computers, uh, new programs. How sophisticated are, is artificial intelligence in the workplace? I mean, is, is it really being used a lot? You know, it varies a lot by industry, but I think what's happening that we're seeing more than more and more and is driving a lot of this anxiety is that we're seeing a lot of these jobs that looked at one period of time um, as though they were very, very stable. They're your white-collar jobs, like being a doctor, for yeah. example. Um, that was a job that you would have said many decades ago that that was automation proof. But nowadays we are seeing the use of artificial intelligence that can do many of the tasks that a doctor might do, um, reading uh, x-rays, for example, uh, and making diagnoses. So we, we might actually see artificial intelligence through this machine learning process uh, develop a better ability to make certain types of diagnoses. So, 
you can see how that um, creates a new type of threat. So yeah. we're seeing this automation take over a whole new class of tasks that we weren't seeing it before. Yeah, you refer to uh, a form of artificial intelligence developed in Beijing that was able to diagnose brain tumors more accurately than 15 of China's top physicians. Um, you know, for some reason, that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, although I ought to be happy that, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? On one hand, you say, gee, that's Absolutely. great. But on the other hand, you say, I don't know what happens when uh, artificial intelligence is more effective at those kind of discernments than human beings. But we, I guess we ought to brace ourselves for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we know that um, we should celebrate that uh, type of technology, just in the sense that it is uh, what John Paul II would call, you know, he would he would say it's the product of work um, in a lot of ways. And we should um, celebrate the fact that we have um, developed such effective tools and the great, you know, human outcomes that can result from that. So saving lives um, giving people an opportunity to fully develop and uh, support their families and make a contribution to, to culture and to civilization that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So in that sense, it's, it's certainly a good thing. Why don't you uh, go ahead and distinguish for us the two meanings of work that John Paul II refers to. We've already talked a little bit about it, the objective side of work and the subjective side, but why don't you just uh, expound a little bit on the distinction? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's such a helpful distinction for thinking about what can uh, automation machines and those types of processes, what can they do and what can they not do? And it, is it identical with what we do as human beings or not? And John Paul II actually wants to say, no, machines cannot actually work. And so he, he has this distinction where um, the objective side of work, that would be things like tools, tasks, processes, and technologies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That would be something that's constantly changing. So as we've already talked about, we move away from uh, sort of artisans making something to uh, industrial processes. So that's a change in the objective side of work. But then there's this subjective side, and that's, that's really the side of work that's all about purpose. And for us as human beings, it's something deep in our nature uh, to want to work. Um, so I was actually cleaning out my gutters yesterday and my three-year-old son wanted to, to climb up on the ladder with me, you know, and help in any yeah. way he could. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's almost irrepressible in us, you know, this desire to contribute, um, to do something meaningful, to, to change our world in, in ways that make it more human. So we want to, you know, to be able to support our families and, and our communities and to make something that lasts. So that's that really that subjective side for him. And so what he says that I think is so valuable is that's our task. As the objective side of work continues to change, we need to look for uh, and support that subjective side, that purpose-driven side. Do you have any idea what percentage of employees see their work as valuable or related to some sense of calling or mission, this subjective side of uh, work that John Paul II is getting at, this sense of meaningful, purposeful labor. Do you have any idea what percentage of American workers would say 
my job is really fulfilling? That's a good question. I mean, according to some surveys, only 27% uh, of Americans say they find their job very fulfilling. Uh, we also have other statistics that highlight that a large portion of workers are, are disengaged at work, meaning they're not, they're not fully exercising their capacities. They probably don't feel as though they can. Maybe they don't feel like their work, work is really challenging them or giving them an opportunity to grow. So it's a relatively small percentage of the workforce, it seems like from these surveys, mm -hmm. that are experiencing their work as a, as a kind of calling. I do remember when I was growing up and watching my father work. Uh, he he actually hated his work, so it was not a very good, not a very good uh, model mm -hmm. for the workplace. But I do remember him saying to me when I was younger, that um, find find something that you like to do, and of course, a lot of times you can't find something you like to do because you have to make a living. You have to put some bread on the table, so you do what you can, but. Uh, it has always remained important to me to th try to find something that um, I, and I have a sense of mission about, a sense of calling. And thankfully, most of my life I've been able to do that. But I just don't know how, I don't know how, are we lifting people's ex expectations inordinately too high when we say mm. that they can, you know, the old book of what colors your parachute, for instance, that everybody mm -hmm. can find the job that's perfectly created for them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, I also think I start with that question in a way by uh, obviously being here at the University of Notre Dame. And there there are students uh, here around who uh, I, I hope are using this as an opportunity to to find that calling. Yeah. So there are there are people out there, and college is a great example of we are afforded this opportunity mm -hmm. to find meaningful work, to find a sense of a calling. So I hope that people who are given a unique opportunity like that are using it. Yeah. But I think, in in addition, your question pushes on this aspect of what about people who aren't given that opportunity? Right. Well, there is some interesting research. Um, Amy Resniewski and Jane Dutton did this research on hospital janitors. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting research because that's not a job that most of us would, would you? think you could approach <laughs> as a calling. Right, it's right. obviously incredibly uh, dirty work. Some of us would find it disgusting to have to clean hospital rooms of sick people. Yeah. Um, but what they discovered was that some of those uh, hospital janitors were actually able to approach their work as a calling. They, uh, they have one janitor in particular named Luke that they discuss quite a bit. And they, they looked at what he was able to do. He, he found his work challenging and really fulfilling. And they looked at the types of things he was able to do. I mean, he, uh, for example, cleaned uh, one patient's room twice because that patient's father, um, who was going through a lot of stress as his son had this chronic condition, um, hadn't seen Luke clean it the first time. So he cleaned it all over again. Interesting. Um, not because his job description told him he had to. Wow. Um, but because he was serving, you know, that family wow. and, that, and that sick person. So there are people in these types of situations. Um, and sometimes I think what uh, they need is just the ability 
to, to do what they would naturally want to do. So we're kind of natural. They use the term job crafting, mm-hmm. moving our job in a more purposeful direction. So at least Luke's uh, manager never told him, you know, he didn't get him in trouble for cleaning the room twice, you know, and that type of thing. He let him have some autonomy to be able to, to take in his work in a more purpose-driven type direction. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example of somebody who has a sense of calling and mission about a job that many people would think, eh, that's just something you got to do to get through. But this fellow, Luke, uh, as you describe him, is somebody who is doing that job as though a calling, and that calling has to do with serving others. Uh, he's not just uh, you know, cleaning up a hospital room. He's creating an environment for its patients and for those who visit. Uh, he has a broad view of what he's doing. We'll come back and continue conversation with Brett Beasley, taking a look at changes in the workplace. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Brett Beasley, is Assistant Associate Director of the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership. And we're taking a look at changes in the workplace occasioned uh, by artificial intelligence. Let me, let me back up, though, and pick up the question of artificial intelligence again. Um, many, I think for a lot of knowledge class workers, uh, this is actually more threatening uh, than you know, the, the older fear of uh, machines or assembly lines or robotics uh, taking over. Uh, the idea that artificial intelligence would be able to, you know, write uh, columns. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's frightening to think about this, that they can actually develop prose style. That's superb. Um, mm-hmm. So knowledge class workers have to be scared. Uh, are there limits? Can we say that there are limits to what we can expect artificial intelligence, uh, the limits of jobs that they can uh, fulfill? Yeah, I think that's a that's a crucial question, and it's always a little bit dangerous to draw your line in the sand right. and say, here are the things that you know yeah. technology will never be able to do, <laughs> in part because uh, people developing technologies Maybe they develop a technology that solves a problem, and, and it does it in a different way than humans would. Um, so it's hard always to say, but I, I do think there's a few things to think about there, about which jobs will, will seem relatively safe. Um, so often it's going to be the jobs that involve a lot of soft skills. So example might be empathy. Yeah, um, okay. That might be persuasion creativity, problem solving, so that uh, we mentioned the example about the artificial intelligence being able to diagnose brain tumors. Um, So while artificial intelligence might be able to get good at a task like that, it's not going to be able to get good at having the the empathy required to work with somebody who has the brain tumor. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a doctor or nurse that's interfacing with that patient, that's the part of that job that uh, is not going to be able to be automated. 
So you're probably going to see a doctor work um, in connection. They, some people call it cobotting or something like huh. that, where you, 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 that robot isn't your, or that artificial intelligence isn't your adversary. It's something that augments you yes. and helps you do your work better. Yeah, so it's a tool. Um, it becomes the, uh, a clear, t- what we used to call absolutely. tools, right? Yeah. 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 Mm, yeah. Very much so. You know, it makes you more effective, and it's it's not removing the the purpose from your job or eliminating you. It's just yeah, it's augmenting you. Mm-hmm. And I good. think at the same time too, if we're thinking about what types of jobs are relatively safe, some people use the term high context to talk about jobs that are the input and output of the job are really vague and hard to define. So. The, the degree to which your job just takes a few set uh, inputs and returns the same output every time, that's always going to be a task that is easier to automate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it's much more gray and unclear, um, it's not going to be as easy to automate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how are, how are uh, big business, uh, large multinational corporations, uh, certainly are looking at how artificial intelligence can be used uh, to advance their position uh, in the market. Um, Do we find that, do do you foresee any major changes in uh, the workplace? Is is there something on the horizon? So so for instance, uh, the invention of the cotton gin, for instance, do, do we have anything like that that you think is going to displace uh, workers that you can already predict? You know, at this time, I don't see that there's going to be some um, one single uh, invention that's going to have a sweeping effect that's going to lead to, you know, radical changes across the industry. I think what we're, what we're more likely to see are possibly – small new technological changes kind of coming at us rapidly. Yeah. Okay. And so maybe there'll be periods where people need to reskill and learn how to work with those technologies or be trained in other types of tasks. Um, so, and I think that's, that's hopefully a better um, situation for, for us as we, you know, learn and develop and have a functioning economy that we don't see just, you know, massive uh, unemployment. Right, right. We may see, you know, small pockets of, of unemployment or something like that as people uh, reskill. More more evolution than revolution then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Brett, for uh, you taking the time to be with us today. Uh, this is something Absolutely. which is going to require more and more thinking as we go along. But uh, I really appreciate you stimulating our uh, awareness of what we're facing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Brett Beasley, uh, we'll have the article, Automation Anxiety and the Meaning of Work, uh, available for you in our online, uh, in the Crested Guest archives there. And uh, uh, we'll talk with Brett again in the future. He's Associate Director of the Notre Dame Deloitte Center uh, for Ethical Leadership. It is hard, I think, for me anyways, it's hard to adjust to uh, this, what you might call the second machine age, uh, which is what we're facing here. And even the word machine makes it sound a little uh, too old. Uh, you know, for about 8,000 years, humanity developed very gradually. Um, the number of people on the planet was largely unchanged. Uh, there were about a half a billion people here. Uh, 
And the tools we used to survive didn't change very much. Uh, as Thomas Hobbes in his Leviathan wrote, life was poor, nasty, brutish, and short. But then towards the last quarter of the 17th century, there were profound changes. The population of the world began to grow exponentially. And uh, if you take a look at a, a graph uh, of you know, population growth uh, going back centuries, you see a sharp uptick beginning at the end of the 17th century. It's like a right angle uh, on the graph. And now we're up to about, um, well, 7 billion from a half a billion just a few centuries ago. And a lot of people looking at this bring it all back to the Industrial Revolution, the Machine Age, as it was called, the beginning of the steam engine. That James Watt and the steam engine is one of those pregnant moments in history. And this allowed people to achieve much more than they could with their limited muscle power. So, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, with the steam engine and uh, so many other uh, new tools that were created, we could generate enormous quantities of energy, uh, human energy as well as machine energy. And the result was factories, mass production. We had railways, mass transportation. And this basically led to the life that we know and have known. And baby boomers in particular, uh, pretty much we were born into that world, and now we're living in the birth of a new age. And it started, uh, it changed the, the first industrial revolution, changed everything, uh, how we work, who works, where we work, where we live, how much we earn, how we earn our living, how many people can live on the planet, where they're going to live. Well, now we've entered a second uh, new age, you might call it, and uh, two authors who have been doing a lot of work on this have called it the second machine age. And like I said, it's it's almost a little retrograde sounding because we're dealing now with artificial intelligence, not just the computer. The computer was just a real fast uh, calculating machine. Now we're dealing with uh, artificial intelligence with implications that are, can be exciting, they can be motivating, and I think for a lot of us, they're a little worrying. You know, before the steam engine, uh, we were forced to, you know, basically work our muscles. With the steam engine, we had cooperation. With the Industrial Revolution, we had cooperation between our muscles and these tools. But now with these digital advances that uh, at first were improving our mental power, now with artificial intelligence... Some of these uh, programs are threatening to begin to do thinking on their own. And uh, back in 2004, for instance, there was a book published dealing with the new division of labor. And uh, at that time, they pointed out that one area that the new uh, computer revolution would never be able to do was this area of driving. So they figured, you know, chauffeurs, truck drivers, uh, couriers had no problems for the future. Well, in 2012, those same authors uh, took a ride in Google's driverless car. And uh, that was part, and is a part, it's a fleet of cars that's traveled hundreds of thousands of miles without anyone driving. And in all this time, as the story goes, it's had only two accidents. One was caused by a human driver uh, that drove into one of these uh, Google's 
driverless cars at a red traffic light. And then uh, there was another one when a person was driving uh, the driverless car. So it's only, that's just one example of where one job, type of job, was thought to be safe, even as late as 2004, which now may be replaced by advanced, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and Internet communications technology. So um, we've seen other great advancements. We've talked about some of them with Brett in the last interview segment. Uh, not only do we have these driverless cars that are logging thousands of miles on American highways, we have the best Jeopardy players being beaten by uh, you know, IBM's Watson. And uh, now we've got uh, diagnoses. Uh, in China, uh, they've been able to diagnose brain tumors using artificial intelligence uh, machines. MIT's uh, Eric um, Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee have written a great book called The Second Machine Age, which is getting a lot of attention now. And they're at the forefront of the field, and they're looking at all the forces that are driving what they think is going to be a reinvention of our lives, of our economy. And we're only at the beginning. We have not seen the full impact of digital technology yet. There's going to be um, uh, an am amazing bounty of new work that's being done. We're going to have a very different infrastructure, and our people growing up now are going to have to learn how to live with that new infrastructure. Um, we already have nearly boundless access to all areas of culture. So you can you know, just get on the using your you know, basic uh, internet, you, you can experience virtually every area of human culture now in some form or other. And I, I, this is going to cause gut-wrenching change for the future. Now, I bring this up, and I want to close off this discussion, not by generating fear, but so, by simply recognizing that it will be anxiety-producing. And Jesus did teach. Be not anxious, right? Three times in the Gospel of Matthew. He repeats in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, don't be anxious for tomorrow. Um, and this is actually something to, re to remember here. Uh, the Lord of the universe is not taken by surprise with these new digital technologies or with a changing workplace or with a changing social environment that we're going to be facing. Uh, what he's saying to us, though... Don't try to control what's not controllable. And so much of our anxiety comes from trying to change what we can't change rather than understanding how we can best enter into these changes, all the time remembering who is the Lord of this changing universe and reminding ourselves in the midst of it that He doesn't change. 